Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and tonight we welcome Keith Lowell Jensen. Keith is a comedian, he doesn't use music in his act, he doesn't play in a band on the side, but he started his performing career as a frontman in bands growing up, and that experience gave him a head start in comedy. He began his comedy career abruptly with Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation as a kind of one-man cover band of comedy. He's performed with a lot of great artists, including an unexpected gig opening for Wu-Tang Clan. He's performed in China as a judge for a comedy show and has written a children's book. He also has a new special on Amazon Prime, Keith Lowell Jensen, Not for Rehire. Watch it, but don't expect one-liners. Keith also gives us some exclusive dog breeding content, so you're welcome. Follow him on social media. He's the only Keith Lowell Jensen. Follow us at Performance ANX. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. Buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. And let's settle in for some dog breeding tips with Keith Lowell Jensen on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. All right. Uh, hey, this is Keith Lowell Jensen, and my new stand-up comedy special, Not For Rehire, is playing on Amazon Prime. I hope you'll go check it out and uh, listen to uh, Mark Shea on Performance Anxiety, the funnest podcast I've done tonight. I kind of I kind of stumbled and said aisle when I meant I or something. It was we. I could do it again if you want, or you just roll with it. Thank you for joining me. This is a, this is a pleasure. Oh, pleasure's all mine. I do want to talk about your new special coming on, but I want to learn more about how you got to doing a special for okay. that that ended up on Amazon Prime because I think that's freaking awesome. Comedy. Yeah, I was pretty excited when it showed up on there. Yeah, comedy is one thing that that I love. I would always dreamed of doing. I I, I took improv classes, and that's about as far as it went. But uh, to get up on stage and do stand-up, it, it's something that I think a lot of people think they can do, and a lot of people would like to do it, myself included, but I don't think a lot of people have the ability to do it. So I want to find out how you got there. Yeah. I, you know, the one thing I would really stress is you got to do it. Yeah. Like, I, I hate the thought of anybody 
having that on their bucket list and then kicking the bucket without getting that taken care of. Like, cause it, you don't need money to do it. You don't like, I know it's scary, but just go do it. And, and I think if you go to see your favorite professional comedian, it's really intimidating. But if you go to like an open mic night, like that's all I did. I went to the local open mic night and the next week I got up. Cause once you see not only amateurs doing it, but professionals doing it when they're working on new material and when they're not in front of a crowd that knows them and adores them. And okay. it, you, you see the the grind, you see the, the work side of it a little more and it makes it more doable. Okay. When you see a professional on stage, you're seeing someone that's workshop that material They've got tons of experience. They're usually in front of a crowd that all knows their name and came to see them, That's which true. makes it easier. That's very like, true. Stamp comedy's upside down. Like to, to do what the professionals do is easier than oh. to get up and do your open mic night the first time, which is the hardest place in the world to score. Not only because of your inexperience, but because the whole thing is stacked against you. Yeah. That's so, a really good point. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, headlining a show where people are excited that it's you <laughs> is the easiest. Thing. It's so fun, yeah, you know, bet. man. Or also like like on the f- opener or feature level, if you're working with other people, you inherit that from them. Like I love opening for Doug Stanhope. Oh, yeah. I've, I've opened for him a good half dozen times now. And that audience is cake (laughs) they're so excited they're about to see someone they love i'm introduced as a friend of his there you go and so they're like oh cool you know (laughs) as soon as they heard doug's friend you're their friend (laughs) yeah i go out there and kill as if i'm doug sanober or kyle canane or something like i don't normally get that much enthusiasm <laughs> but it's a sort of you know the opposite of guilt by association like oh. i'm famous by association for that you know 15 minutes right and yeah. then it goes away and i'm poor again but <laughs> <laughs> so all right so you you you're originally from california are you originally from the sacramento area because that's I've been listening to your podcast and you've mentioned it a lot about. Yeah. Different, you've had Sacramento some kind of part of my identity, but I've only been here. I've been in the Sacramento area since I was 14. Okay. And then I've been living in Sacramento itself since I was 18. Okay. Cause your first guest was, was Anton Barbeau. And I thought that was a really cool interview. I really enjoyed listening to that one. Yeah. He's great. And he was such a like local Sacramento celebrity when I was, you know, when I was like 18 or 19. Yeah. The one I was, I was listening to uh, just recently, um, I can't remember the lady's name. I'm I'm blanking on it, but it, she was she's the uh, the lady who deals with complex things. Is also in the circus, and she's a stand-up comedian. Uh, Roy um, Andrea Roy. I, I I'm just hesitating because I always screw her name up. It's uh, Andrea Jones Roy. Jones Roy. How did I forget the and Jones I- part? I, I get messed up on the Andrea part because there's Andrea and Andrea and Andrea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's so ridiculously smart. I actually met her in Shanghai, China. And that, I definitely want to find out about that because that's that's a weird, weird place to do comedy. But did you grow up always wanting to uh, be a comedian? Were you were like the, the class clown, the, the, the funny kid in school? Or I guess I was... I remember being called a class clown for the first time in junior high. 
this kid Joey called me the class clown. He said he he was like explaining why they weren't cool to me, and then they were. They were like the popular <laughs> kids. And he's like, "Oh man, when you first came in, we didn't know what to make of you, but now I get it. You're the class clown." And honestly. I wanted to be the class poet, man. I didn't want to be the oh, class yeah. clown. Like I was a serious kid. I was real into like the cure and uh, oh, wow. I, I wrote poetry. I was funny and I, and I liked comedy, but I didn't have that respect. Like somehow I didn't see comedians on that level where I was like, Oh, they're artists. And that's the thing, you know, ah. I, I looked up to Spielberg more than I looked up to say Robin Williams or really? <laughs> Emo Phillips. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. But you were being funny and, and, and out about, you had the, that natural comedic side to you. Yeah. I couldn't help it. I, I was a <laughs> smart aleck. I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> Sometimes totally on accident. One time the teacher was explaining that, uh, objects that have gra uh, mass are attracted to each other in space, you know, basically explaining gravity. Yeah. And I raised my hand and she called on me and I said, is that why the last two or three Cheerios always stick together? <laughs> and I meant it. It was not a joke. And the whole class cracks up laughing at you. Jensen outside. And I had to wait. <laughs> That's so funny because I was like, no, I really thought that might be why so much so that I looked it up. It's because they're, putting weight on the surface tension, causing it to have a low point and everything flows towards the low point. I literally looked it up because I had to know. And here I'm showing good scientific curiosity. She should have been thrilled with me. She kicked me out of class. Oh God. And this began your so comedy I, career. Yeah. That was one of those things where it was like, uh, everybody was laughing at me. So I became a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. So how old were you when you started really thinking about pursuing comedy going on stage and, and open mic nights like we were just talking about. So I'd been in a band. Um, I worked for Spike and Mike's festival of animation. And, and so I consider that my first time doing stand up. but, but I, I hosted shows and I was funny, but I didn't see until years later when I did stand up that, Oh, I was doing stand up then. Uh, then I was in a band. Then I started my own film series, uh, first called the Tuesday night Grindhouse, And then it evolved into something called the trash film orgy <laughs> in Sacramento. And that, that ran for like 20 years, but I was oh, wow. only involved in it the first few, all things to put me on stage. I, I knew that I liked being creative. I knew that I liked working with an audience. And after the band thing fell apart, you know, that was years of work. And because someone's girlfriend got pregnant and they decided they had to quit the band. Oh, it was all taken away from me and I didn't, I couldn't do that again. And it wasn't even your girlfriend. Right. Somebody else. You know, I was like, I practice safe sex. Like yeah. I do the right thing. <laughs> so then I, uh, I decided to try stand up at that point because I wanted to do something that other people couldn't take away from me. And I'd gotten really into Andy Kaufman and oh, that, geez. that clicked something in my head where seeing Andy made me start respecting comedy as art. And then I got into the Marx Brothers and then I started, but, but even the, the more traditional standup that isn't super weird, I saw the artistry in it. I was yeah. like, oh, this is poetry. It's beautiful, you know? So then I headed down to my, my local open mic at Laughs Unlimited in old Sacramento. So I guess we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. You were in a band. Yeah. What, now, what did you do in the band? What, were you, what instrument were you, were you singing? 
Oh, I had to be the center of attention, man. I was a singer. <laughs> and I was not a good singer, but I was a great front man. Oh, yeah. I mean, all my pants had holes in the knees because I was always jumping down on my knees on stage or, or even out into the audience. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I was a nut. And we, we were kind of like 60s garage music, like like early, like proto-punk. Oh, cool. You know, like the Shadows of Night and listen to a lot of kinks and <laughs> oh, so you'd gotten past your uh robert smith phase at this point yeah yeah no i had a band that explored that influence too but that never went anywhere oh man <laughs> we were called we were called vincent's other ear yeah <laughs> <laughs> so even there you're coming my serious poetic you know <laughs> band i'm being funny i may have had black nail polish on and black dye in my hair but i was funny <laughs> yeah that's a great name i love that well, then we found out there was a band called Van Gogh's Ear. And then we found out there was a cafe in Venice, California called Van Gogh's Other Ear or something like that. So I contacted both of them and I was like, we need to play together at the place. Yeah. And both of them were like, no, that's a terrible idea. Quit using our name. Oh. <laughs> Come with that. Okay. I would have been so into that. Oh, my God. I would right. have gone to see that show even if I had no idea who the hell you guys were or where that right. place was. As I try to tell, don't compete, collaborate. Exactly. <laughs> so, what, so, so, music was music your first creative love then? Um, at painting. I in in painting. high school, I painted also, and, Man, you do and like everything. writing a lot of writing. Yeah, I remember my brother John telling me once that I had to pick something, and I was like, No, I don't. <laughs> 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 you know? So, which is funny because to look back at that, because now he's like way more uh esoteric than me he, he is like an abstract minimalist painter and he oh, wow. plays the guitar and he makes pipes like uh you know good quality like tobacco, like pipes, tobacco pipes oh wow yeah <laughs> jeez <laughs> tell, like, you tell me John, you, gotta... you gotta pick something exactly <laughs> <laughs> so all right so you're in bands and and i did see your special so i i, I is this around the time you kept getting fired from all your jobs? Yeah, that kept going on well into my comedy career. I, <laughs> but I think here's what's funny. So I, I use lists a lot to, for, for creativity, like make a list of every place you've ever lived. And, and maybe that'll turn into a comedy set like that one didn't. But I made a list of every job I ever had. And I was working at Petco at the time. And I remember I was talking to some of the other assistant managers. There was like a big corporate meeting. And so all the assistant managers from the area were all in our store. And they were like, well, where else have you worked other than Petco? And, and you know, we're all passing around the circle. And someone's like, oh, I used to work at Dollar Tree. And someone else is like, oh, I started at Burger King and then went to Petco. And yeah. then they came to me and I was like, well, I, you know, I worked at the golf course and then I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then after that, I was a janitor <laughs> at the parking lot over here. And, and then I worked at the, you know, and like, I'm like nine in and I see all their eyes are big. And I went, oh, I'll just I'll stop there. <laughs> 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 I didn't realize that it was unusual to have so many jobs because I, I hang out with a lot of other artists and it's not unusual for us because yeah. you have the day job. And if you get offered a gig and your day job says you can't take the time off, you quit. Right. You know, or also artists just tend to be nuts. And so you get fired a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> so you're always either quitting or getting fired and you don't care because it's not, a career, your career is the thing that you're doing when you're not at work, you know? Yeah, it's the thing um, you're not getting paid for very well. Right. 
So yeah. apparently my, but of course we didn't usually didn't get paid very well for our day job yeah. either. That's, that's <laughs> a good point. My the, career is apparently podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're making that fat podcasting. Cat, exactly. So. So you can, <laughs> as you can tell, I couldn't figure out how to use freaking Google Hangouts. All right. so, out of all those jobs that you've had, what was the, the one that you hated the most? Oh God, it's so hard to say because each one of them you you hate so much when you have it. So if you go to Not For Rehire, you watched it on Amazon Prime, right? Yes, I did. If, if you go to the audio version of it, like on Spotify, yeah, there's a bonus track called Must Love Dogs. Oh, okay. And we cut it because we were trying to keep the special more clean. Yeah. But it's about one of the jobs I hated the most, maybe the most, which was Petco, but it wasn't Petco until they transferred me. And I worked with this woman named Jean, okay. who was a, she was a dog breeder. That oh. was, that was, so Petco was her day job. Okay. Um, and, and she actually sold dog sperm all over the country. Oh, interesting. And I was like, Oh, that's, that makes sense. You know, you have had these blue ribbon award winning dogs and people want to get their sperm to make more award-winning yeah. but then it occurred to me one day to, to ask how do you get the product yeah. like how do you get and she's like how do you think keith <laughs> so i asked her i was like do you jerk off your dogs Jean? yeah 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 and she no i don't jerk off my dogs i have a guy and i was like your boyfriend <laughs> yeah. off your dogs? you got a like, dog no, fluffer there's a guy that that's his job and i was like Oh my, just blew my mind. So no job that I had seemed bad at that point. I was like, wow, I could be the, and then I thought that guy probably wears a lab coat. Whenever I see someone in a lab coat, I kind of give respect, you know, I'm like, oh, they probably worked harder than me. Oh yeah. You know, they probably make more money than me. They're wearing a lab coat. Now I see the lab coat. I'm like, they might just jerk off dogs. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. You never know. That guy could be a dog fluffer. Right. Funny thing, and this is not on the album. This is exclusive content just for you. Yes. I, uh, when, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I actually teach a class to help people get their first five minutes of comedy together. Oh, cool. At, at our local comedy club here, uh, the Punchline in Sacramento. And I had a guy come through and take my class, and he jerks off dogs for a living. Oh, my God. He's a dog breeder himself. Oh, wow. But other people he does, he breeds the little Frenchies. Oh, wow. Cute little French bulldogs. Yeah. But he also gets hired by other. And he was telling me the funniest stories. He'll literally meet people in a parking lot and do the deed in the back of their pickup truck right there in the parking lot. He says, it doesn't take long. (laughs) (laughs) And then hand them a sack of the stuff and be like, there you go. And they give him, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever. Oh my God. (laughs) He's also the sweetest guy. He's like super nice dude. See, if you do it between species, it's okay. But you do it within the same species, you get arrested. Isn't that odd? That's very... Man, you're, you're helping me write new material. Yeah. <laughs> he, he can do that right in the open in the parking lot. Meanwhile, there's a, a storefront in that same parking lot that has to keep its blinds down and pretend that they're yeah. <laughs> selling hair, hair styling or... <laughs> Don't go to any truck stop on the interstate. You get the same thing. Right. Terrible. So, <laughs> but I did find out something... Well, actually, a lot of things I I, I got to ask you about. I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying to figure out where I'm trying to remember where they are on the timeline here. Okay, you had a pretty frightening first experience 
going on stage. And that's right when you started with um, the Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation. Yeah. So I used to watch Mike host the show all the time. Mike of Spike and Mike. Yeah. And he was a really kind of a magical guy. I describe him as being the closest thing to a wizard I've ever met. Yeah. And what, what is what is the Festival of Animation? Because I'm, I'm not real familiar with it. So it used to travel all over the country to all the um, any college town. Okay. And we didn't go to New York, which they explained to me was because you can't make money in New York. They were like, <laughs> literally, people go to New York so they can get reviewed by the Times or so that they get, you know, you, you pay for the privilege of paying in New York. It's almost impossible to actually make it profitable. I don't know if that's true then, but that's what they told me 30, 40 years ago when they were when they were doing it. So, um I would watch Mike introduce the show and he's this guy. He's like six, three, six, four. He's got a big purple beard. He's wearing a purple suit with furry Doc Martin boots. I mean, just a character, you know, checkered jacket. And he would come out and talk to the adults like they were kids. He'd be like, hello, everybody. Are you ready to see some beautiful animated films? You know? yeah. But there was, there was this weird sincerity to it. Okay. That you fell into it and you became a kid and you could, he wouldn't start the movie until everyone in the theater put their fingers in the air and wiggled their fingers oh, wow. and then pulled them down. And then he would have the projectionist dim the lights with their hands as they come down. Oh, that's and that's cool. how the film would start. And I loved it. And I'd, I would watch him every time. The other boys would, you know, I say the boys, we were like this little party crew, right. of like promoters that would go with the show to each town. And we'd pass out the flyers. We'd run the show at the theater, a pretty rowdy bunch. And they would go and start drinking. They're off now. The show's started, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I would always watch him first and, and then go hang out. Okay. And he saw, he noticed that I was always watching him. And then at one point he asks me about it. And I said, cause I, I like what you do, you know? And then he says, you want to do it, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, you know, someday. Yeah. And he goes, good. Cause I'm not feeling it tonight. And he literally just shoved me through the curtain. Wow. And now I'm standing in front of you, know, probably like a couple hundred people. It was in one of the smaller rooms at UC Riverside. Okay. But just boom. And I'm standing in front of hundreds of people and I don't have an act. I don't have any jokes. Uh, I'm just like, oh my God, this son of a bitch. <laughs> so I did his act. I just, I was a, a cover band right. of, of comedy, which is the best way to start in comedy. It that was is so cool. awesome because I had material I knew worked, yeah. captive audience. And so I would do it every now and then after that, you know? Okay. And sometimes I would be the guy I would do. I would host every show and I would add a joke or two of my own each night until eventually I had my own set. Okay. And it was the gentlest, easiest way to dip my toe into stand up. I feel bad for people that have to start and can't walk out stage and do someone else's material <laughs> <laughs> for a crowd who wants <laughs> to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Starting, starting in the open mic night. And that's, so the first time I did start going to the open mic night, it was such a different experience, oh, wow. but I already had all this stage experience. I mean, I was pretty confident on stage already at that point. Right. I'd held a microphone. I would, you know, I had, I had a head start. Yeah. You, you had a feel, a little sense of the, of the stage and you weren't right. just sitting I'd there. I in a band too. So there were different, you know. Exactly. Exactly. At what point did you break off and start doing your own stuff? Well, that was after I quit Spike and Mike. Okay. And came back to Sacramento 
I started, like I mentioned, the Tuesday night grindhouse, which then became the trash from orgy. I, I went to the open mic, um, after having had a band for, I think we were together four years. Okay. And so I'm in my, I'd say mid to late twenties at this point, okay. which is late. So most comics I know started much younger than I did. Yeah. Yeah. But once I went in, I went in with everything I had. I mean, I went hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, when my brother told me I had to pick something, uh, I guess I just hadn't found the thing yet. You know, yeah. once I, comedy was it, like once I started doing comedy, I, it was my life and it still is. It's the center of my professional and artistic life for sure. Oh, I, I imagine it, you're thinking about things all the time and your writing process. Are you, are you, Basically, it would, I mean, I guess the question should be phrased, how do you, what is your process for writing new material? Are you constantly looking at things and think, is there a joke in there? Or are you pulling stuff from your, your past or is it a combination? Do you sit down and just write or do you just write when it hits you? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above really. Okay. Uh, so I, I have a couple of rules. One is if you think of something, write it down. Okay. And every comic I know can remember a time they were like, Oh yeah, I was driving back from San Jose and I thought of this joke and it made me laugh. And I thought oh, that's going to be my big joke. That's going by the time I got home, I couldn't remember it. And I thought it would come back and it never came back, you know? Yep. So if, if I'm driving home, cause we're constantly driving, driving yeah. is a huge part of stand up. If I'm driving home and I think of a joke, I'll keep repeating the joke and keep driving. But if I think of a second joke or a tag, okay, pull over. Yeah. Like that's my rule. And more than, more than one bouncing around in your head, you're going to lose one. Yeah. And there have been times coming back from San Francisco, which is the most frequent drive I do. It's about an hour and a half each way. Okay. It'll be two in the morning and I'm sitting on the side of highway 80 on some off ramp with no streetlights, <laughs> you know, scribbling. <laughs> This is, you know, I mean, I've been doing this so long. It was before uh, we had phones so much more convenient now to just always have a notepad open in the yeah. phone. My wife used to find scraps of paper all over the house, backs <laughs> of receipts, you know, whatever napkins. Yeah. And she had a special box. She'd throw them all in. Oh. And so when I wanted to write, I would empty that out on the, that box out on the bed and go through them, you know, and then write. <laughs> But the other thing I think is important is to not wait for inspiration. I think you have to, you wait for inspiration because you don't want to write something bad. You only want to write something good. Okay. And I think if you spend an hour sitting and writing something that you ultimately throw away, that was a good productive hour because okay. you're exercising those muscles, you're tapping your creativity. And if you do three or four of those hours, you might get something good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> three or four of those where you didn't have any inspiration, but you sat and you wrote anyway. And that's where I do lists. I sit down and I'm like, well, what am I going to write about? So I'm like, okay, who are all the people in your life you've called best friend? That's one I started playing oh. with recently. I was like, okay, the first person I ever called my best friend was Eric Mayer when I was a kid. Okay. And then after Eric was Jamie. And then after that was Kim. And so once I have that list, then I'll think, what are some funny Eric stories? Oh God, all the Eric stories are tragic. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> <to Jamie. laughs> what are some funny Jamie stories? <laughs> you know, and, and that's how Not For Rehire came to be. That was a list of every job I ever had. That's really interesting. That's a great, I never thought of anything like that. 
but but inspiration still plays a role because then once I'm doing that and I'm working on that, I'll be out for a walk and I'll think of something or remember something that has to do with that, the thing that I'm working on. Because so like the, you said, you're exercising still, those muscles. Yeah. So right. once they start moving, it's it they start to get limber and, and things start to, to come back to you and, and 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 you mentioned something in one of your podcasts that I thought was great. You, you had uh, interviewed Bob Hope, I believe, and you had asked him about why is it that uh, every comedian thinks every joke has to kill and not everyone does. And I think that's actually a great point. Not every joke ha- that, that a comedian does has to destroy the audience. I mean, they can build and build. Now, I, now I wish I had interviewed Bob Hope. Uh, <laughs> but it was probably Greg Proops talking about that's what Bob it was. It was, the, it was on the Greg Proops episode. Yeah, maybe it was Greg that interviewed or, him. or I interviewed Bob Newhart. Newhart, I me talking about Newhart. Damn it, that's one it of the Bobs. It was, no, that's all right. There's so many names bouncing around, so many Bobs in comedy, and they're all yeah, old. I had, I had a bit that wasn't a crusher with a strong punchline. But it was like a nice turn of phrase and, and it made a point and I liked the way that it made the point. And I was sharing it with a comedian friend of mine and he said, it adds to your overall set. If you did too many of those, it might weigh it down, but it's okay that that joke doesn't kill because it still makes the set stronger. It makes your character on stage stronger. He's like, you need some of those. And this is a joke I was going to discard and I was so glad that I left it. And oh, awesome. now if anything, I might err on the side of too many of those. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you, if you look at the reviews of not for rehire on Amazon prime, most of them are good reviews. Yeah. But people say this isn't comedy in the traditional sense, or this isn't stand up. Wow. And I disagree, but I actually like those comments because really? it means that I did something differently than they've seen other people do it. That's a really good point. And I would, I mean, like you said, I would argue that that's actually comedy in the traditional sense because of Newhart and, and the way he would build and, 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 and hell Bob Hope, let's go, let's go to all the Bobs. They would you know, not every joke. <laughs> Goldthwaite in there yeah. too. <laughs> well, Gold, Goldthwaite is, is an incredible storyteller. Yeah. It's so funny how there's always been that back and forth. You know, when, when Newhart came out along with like Shelley Berman and Mort Saul, um, Dick Gregory, yeah, it was, it was very different. Newhart himself described it as a sea change in comedy because everybody was doing the, the one-liners. They were doing jokes. And now all of a sudden you got guys doing full monologues, you know, but then, you know, you get Steve Martin and we kind of get back to silly and we get back to jokes. Yep. You know, and now we've got all over the place and you've got people who I respect so much who do stuff, something I could never do. But um, like Mitch Hedberg, dropping those one liners or Stephen Wright. I miss Mitch so much. Yeah, me too. Um, Dimitri Martin is is brilliant with his one liners. I have so much respect for that. And it's one year and it was quite a while ago, but one year I set a goal to try to write a half an hour of just one liners. Oh my gosh. And I I think I made it to about minute 20 and then I worked them onto one of my albums mixed in with the stories. Oh, cool. Um, But usually, you know, I have a few one liners here and there. But man, that was hard. That was really like one-liners are very difficult to write. Oh, yeah. yeah, And to write a half an hour's worth of them because they only last a few seconds. 
Right. Just, <laughs> Holy shit. That's crazy. Yeah, so much. Yeah. So, you know, but then you've got people going the other direction as well that are taking the storytelling thing. You know, someone like Mike Birbiglia or uh, Bamford, Maria Bamford. Her stuff is so surreal and experimental and cerebral. And yeah. so, yeah, I feel like it, the, the comedy game is more open than it's ever been. But if someone tells me what I'm doing is not stand up, I'm like, cool. All the music I've ever liked, people told me wasn't music. So we're good. There you go. <laughs> you know? You're just being true to yourself at that point. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So how did you end up opening for Wu-Tang? And that's actually <laughs> Wu-Tang. It's not like, like a cover band, like Wu underscore Tang. Right, right. <laughs> Wu underscore Tang. I wonder, is that, could you legally get away with that? <laughs> I don't know. We, we have to try so that. Crazy. American atheists used to do this big thing. I think this was the last one they did. They would do this big thing in um, D.C., this big outdoor atheist sort of convention. Okay. And I got invited to perform both at, at the hotel in the events leading up to the big day and then on stage at the big day. Okay. And I performed very early in the day. Um, really difficult. Outdoor venues are rough. Uh, the PA system has this like delay and echo, echo. Oh, God. <laughs> I did my best. And then the rest of the day is just hanging out, having a good time, you know. And waiting to see Wu-Tang because Wu-Tang was headlining it. Now, Wu-Tang doesn't profess to be atheists. Some people complained that they had Wu-Tang as the headliners. That they should have had someone who was outspoken as atheists, this and that. <laughs> Wu-Tang was willing to do it. They could afford him and it was a good time. They yeah. Were, Let's do it. You know? Who wouldn't want to see them anyway? So, right. Now, Wu-Tang is notorious for being late to shows. Oh, really? I was on a... I was in a festival in Santa Cruz where Ghostface Killa just didn't show up at all. Um, (laughs) So I'm sitting in the green room and I hear, oh my God, Wu-Tang is supposed to be going on in five minutes and they're not here. And so I said, yeah, you know, those guys are like often hours late, right? And the dude goes, okay, Keith, I got a call. They're on their way, but I need you to go on stage until they get here. And I said, it might literally be hours. And he said... (laughs) You've got, at the time I had five albums out. He's all, you have five hours of material out. And I was like, no, all of it's ready all the time. <laughs> and I literally, I walked out with my CDs in my hand. Cause I thought if I run out of material, I'm just going to look and be like, Oh, that joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> be my list. But as it worked out, I only had to do about 10 minutes. The microphone cut out on me. There, it was feed, feeding back because they hadn't sound checked for me. They had done, you know, for a very different. Act. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. They threw a microphone up last minute for me because they didn't want me using Wu Tang's microphones because they were all set for them the way they required them. Yeah, you know the way their writer said they had to be, and. So it wasn't like a great performance, but I didn't care. And I kept telling the audience that I kept laughing. I'm like, this is surreal. Like I'm getting you ready for Wu-Tang. Are you ready for (laughs) (laughs) Wu-Tang? I'm the guy opening for Wu-Tang. That's crazy. Uh, And then finally I look over and I see David, the promoter doing this at me. Yeah. And so I said, ladies and gentlemen, Wu-Tang Clan, <laughs> I'm walking off stage and Method Man passes me and I'm just like, oh my God. And then I, I stood on the edge of the stage and looked out at the audience while Wu-Tang's performing. Oh, wow. And the energy, it was 
I mean, I'm like I said earlier, big music. Guy. I've been to a lot of shows, yeah. but to feel that energy, to see everybody doing the woo W with their hands and yeah. just, you know, all in unison and <sighs> the, the cutest part. It was so adorable. There's a cute part. There's a very cute part. Some guy yells, uh, you know, Wu-Tang, fuck yeah. And uh, Method Man goes, hey, man, uh, they asked us not to curse because there's a lot of children here. And so we'd appreciate it if you didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy goes, all right, all right. <laughs> oh, that's he awesome. the nicest guy in the world. That's so amazing. Cool. And oh, then they took pictures. They, they hung out, were very generous with their time, took pictures with everyone afterwards. Oh, that's and- awesome. Yeah, it was super dope. You don't you don't hear that often where when especially for bands who are notorviously late to gigs. You like you get your your, your Guns N' Roses kind of thing where right. They're late to gigs and they hate everybody. They piss everybody in the crowd off and then they leave immediately after they're done. Yeah, whereas I don't think Wu-Tang is late because of a disrespect for the audience or yeah. I, <laughs> I think they just you know, they're probably just getting high and Yeah. <laughs> not not, probably, not exactly paying attention to the time. Them. What's that? Not exactly paying attention to the clock. Right, right. You know, they didn't get into that line of work because they yeah. wanted to be clock watchers. Exactly. <laughs> so you ended up doing, uh, I guess it was judging a comedy series or, or show or, or competition in Shanghai, China? Yeah, which is funny because I hate competitions. I don't do them. How did you get into that? And, and what was it like? Because was it a competition for... English speaking people in China yeah. or, okay. Cause I was going to say, you know, uh, I've heard, now I'm not a comedian, but I've heard that humor famously doesn't translate. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure which point to, to take off with. Cause I, yeah. I'm gonna build them. <laughs> so the, the first thing is as soon as people hear that I performed in China, they're like, really? But I performed for mostly Europeans, Americans, South Americans who are in Shanghai doing business. Okay. Shanghai is this huge international city. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was performing for a lot of expats, which I still can't figure out what the difference between a foreigner and an expat is. I think white people like to call themselves expats and everyone else foreigners. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, but basically what I would have called foreigners, us in this case. And so, you know, my, my friend Turner Sparks, from who's a great comedian. If, if I'd recommend checking him out and he's in New York. Okay. Uh, he has an album out right now called uh, live at the Friars club, but he had gone there <laughs> to sell ice cream of all things. He started Mr. Softy trucks in uh, Suzhou a city close to Shanghai. Oh, wow. And he did an open mic night there that some Australian dude, Andy started. Andy's a great guy. Okay. He's doing cool things. And they loved it. So they started making more open mic nights and then they found a touring circuit around China. Wow. Um, again, performing mostly for English speakers. And then eventually they started China's first full-time stand-up comedy club. Oh, wow. And so I'm begging them to bring me out. I want to go out so bad. I've dreamt of going to China since I was a little kid and saw big Bird standing on the great wall. I was like, I gotta go to China. You know, (laughs) And, and if you remember back then, China was much more of a closed society. So oh, yeah. it was, I think that was also part of the appeal is that China was so mysterious when I was a kid. Yeah. But the way that I got to go was that another comedian was supposed to be headlining and judging and he fell off the wagon. Oh, he started no. 
they started drinking again. Oh no. And so they called me with only four days notice. And they were like, Hey dude, can you, can you come to China in four days? I said, for how long? They said for two weeks. I was like, wow. wow, let me, uh, let me talk to my wife about this. I said, can you get me a visa? And they paid so much money to be able to expedite my visa. Oh my gosh. Um, luckily I already had a passport. So I, I went back in and told my wife, Hey, uh, Turner, you know, finally called me to come to China and she goes, Oh, you've been wanting that forever. And I said, yeah, for two weeks though. And she goes, Oh, well, you know, we've got a baby. Oh gosh. Uh, and she said, okay, when? And I said, in four days <laughs> and she, she's taken aback for a second, but then she goes, well, you gotta go. Oh, wow. And I, and I joke that that either means that I have a really cool wife or that I'm not that great of a husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, whatever. Yeah. Either way, I'm going to China. Yeah. Yeah. It works out well for me either way. (laughs) How did that work? I mean, were you just, I don't don't even, I've got so many questions are just kind of jumbled up in my head about going to China and doing comedy in China. Uh, So it was, it was a contest for expats. Yeah. It was surprisingly just like anywhere else. The expat community, they all know each other and they all hang out. So you've got this wonderful group of people from all over, mostly Europe, but from all over the world. Okay. All hanging out. My friend, Steve, who was born in Hong Kong, uh, he was there. He's, he's an American, but he had flown over for it. Um, you know, uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Oh man, I'm forgetting the name of it. There's a dude from Tokyo. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to screw his name up, but, uh, he's not like a big famous guy. Okay. Uh, and I'm screwing it up. Anyway, he was there. (laughs) So it's really neat community of people that all know each other and hang out. And so I would have to judge the competition along with some other people. Okay. Um, and then also I got to headline, I think three different shows and then go perform at some showcases and stuff. Oh, cool. And the only thing that was different about it, the only thing that was weird is when I first got there and they said, Hey, if you talk about the three T's, they'll shut us down. Like you can literally get the club shut down. You can say whatever you want, but you can't mention Taiwan, Tibet or Tiananmen square. Oh, wow. And I was like, Oh, I don't, uh, jokes about any of those things. (laughs) I feel we should be okay. Oh, I've got 30 minutes on Tiananmen square. Right. But I've also got this brain that's like, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're telling me I can't say something. Hmm. So I did this, I did a joke there on act. I I swear it just came out of my mouth, but I, I was saying, so I have a daughter that's a normal thing that I say on stage that I have a daughter. But as I said it, I went, so I have a daughter and then I went, Oh no, it's okay. I'm American. Like we, we like her. We're going to keep her. Uh, (laughs) I was like, Oh, that was mean. Like, why did you say that to these nice people? (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. Um, And that I was allowed to say, I I went to Turner afterwards. I was like, was that okay? Like, I'm sorry that that just kind of came out, you know, when you're on stage and you're, you're all hyped up and he goes, no, that's fine. You didn't mention Tibet, Taiwan or Tiananmen Square. (laughs) But I guess the main point is they don't, that joke might not have been okay if I was Chinese, but they don't really care. Like I also had my phone there illegally, like accessing the internet. You you do this thing where it, it, it's like a proxy server. Okay. So I'm accessing the internet, but through Poland or something like, <laughs> wow. like Facebook kept not knowing where I was. 
but then tagging photos accurately. Like it was that's, the weirdest combination of really weird workarounds in order to, to access the internet as freely and openly as I'm used to. Yeah. And again, I said, I'm technically breaking the law in China, uh, a notoriously totalitarian government. Right. That's, that's very heavy handed regarding crime. And they kept reassuring me because I'm the kind of person to need it. Yeah. But they kept reassuring me saying they don't care about you. Like oh. you're, you're just an expat here doing some business. Right. If you lived here, if you were, if you were even here performing for Chinese people, if you spoke Chinese, whole different ballgame. Wow. But as long as I'm an English speaking dude, just there entertaining expats, they don't care. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So you mentioned in your segment here about uh, opening for Wu-Tang, all your comedy albums. Yeah. You've done a bunch. How is it doing comedy albums and releasing them in the days of YouTube and streaming services? Is it, is it uh, as big of a thing as it used to be? Yeah, but in a weird way. It's bigger. It's bigger than really? ever. But in a weird way, it's all about satellite radio. I didn't really feel like I had a career mm -hmm. until three albums ago. My first album with 800 Pound Gorilla, which was called KLJ Greatest Bits. Yeah. And it's, it's a clean album and they play the hell out of it on Sirius XM uh, Laughs USA. Okay. And they pay really well. Oh, wow. But there it, it makes it a singles market okay and you know as you saw with not for rehire i like to do i'm moving into now as i'm becoming an older comedian i'm a storyteller yeah. and i like to do an album where the beginning works you to the end and it's all one piece and it's really not for rehire more than anything else i've done is meant to be heard as an hour right right and so that's for sure. yeah, listening to it that yeah that's for sure there are a couple bits on it, like the Kentucky Fried Hand, um, yeah. that stand alone. But even those are 13 to 15 minutes. And yeah. they're reluctant to put those on the radio. They don't want to give me, you know, a quarter of an hour of airtime when normally they would. Then again, maybe they do want to because they only pay me for a single track, whether it be three minutes or 15. So maybe uh, I'm saving them money. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Spotify horribly underpays us. Yeah. Pandora... But you can make some money off of Pandora. Okay. Um, Amazon, I'm new to. So let's see. It'll be interesting to see how that pays. But really, satellite radio is for independent artists. It's a boon. I mean, it's a really great source of income and, and really just changes the game. And, That's really and I love them for that. Yeah. I wish I would have known sooner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I. I I never thought about that because I'm thinking of it. Most of the people I talk to on this podcast are musicians and right. I've had a few comedians, but a chef or two, but mostly musicians and streaming and YouTube has really changed the way they have to do music. So I was really curious to see if, if it had done the same for, com for comedy. So it's really interesting. Your take on that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, it for making money when I tour, um, I'm glad that I have books to sell. All, I sell out of books all the time. Oh. Um, t-shirts, if I can print up t-shirts, that's great. Not selling a lot of CDs anymore. Really? Um, I see some people like Matt Bronger, who is putting all of his stuff on vinyl. 
Yeah. Which I think is great because then it's, that's cool. That's almost like buying a piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people that maybe weren't going to buy it to listen to it necessarily, but they're like, Ooh, you have vinyl, you know? Yeah. Then again, vinyl's heavy and he's got to cart vinyl around all the shows. I saw Steve Hofstetter telling people, look, I'll give you all five of my albums on a single flash drive (laughs) and a picture with me for five bucks or whatever. So I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like that's that's a way to move some stuff, you know? So we're all finding ways to work with it, but yeah, it sure is different. I mean, I used to walk in with a box of CDs and and know that I was going to, you know, maybe double what I got paid for the night by moving the the merchandise. And now, different merchandise. Yeah. And it kind of, <laughs> so I got another book coming out and then I have a kid's book coming out. Oh, you wow. Know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely going to give, give the people what they're paying for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they obviously want it. Right. So how, a kid's book. What, how did you get into uh, writing for children? By having one. Ah, I, I tell her stories at night. And then one night I told her a story called tiger torn okay. about a tiger who was having a really hard time finding a job. <laughs> And he sort of, yeah, right. I didn't even think at the time about that relating to me. So the tiger in the, in the process of the story, he works at an ice cream parlor. He works at the post office and he gets fired from all these jobs. He has a brain freeze incident. He works at KFC. Ice cream place. Right. He, uh, he, he has a feather that he accidentally breathes in while delivering some pillows for the postal service and sneezes his head off. Um, and that gets him fired, you know, so basically it's me as a tiger <laughs> And in the end, he works at a clothing store and he accidentally tears a bunch of the clothes because of his big tiger claws, uh, but they like it. They're like, Ooh, tiger torn clothing. This is the hip new fad. And so <laughs> that's uh, awesome. So yeah, I'm real excited about it. it. It's not under my name. I decided to do my kids books under the name Lowell coil. So it's my middle name and my mom's, uh, maiden name okay and and now anyone that goes to that security question what's your mother's maiden name yeah ah, I ah, that's okay but, nobody's um, listening oh good good <laughs> <laughs> there's a silver lining to that um so i'm, I'm real excited about it and a, a local friend of mine here evan is doing all the artwork and uh and clash books is publishing that and my my upcoming book what i was arrested for which will be published under my own name so oh excellent excellent how has thing how how has the comedy changed for you during the quarantine era i know uh, i i had heard that you'd recently got invited to do a gig where you can you were invited to sleep on the stage <laughs> you'd be surprised how often i do that uh, <laughs> There used to be this great club called Spanganga and and then it became the dark room in San Francisco where we would go perform two shows on Friday, pull out our sleeping bags, sleep on the stage, wake up in the morning, enjoy San Francisco, and then perform two shows on Saturday and go home. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I I went up to Arcata and I performed and I I really regretted it. Everything was socially distanced. The audience were wearing masks and it still just felt like unnecessary risks. Yeah. Um, So that. The other shows I've done, I performed at Luna's Cafe, but it was literally empty. Oh, like wow. I, I called the owner and said, hey, I want a live stream from your venue, but I want it empty. And he's like, yeah, I'm not doing anything anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's not you know? hard. <laughs> right. So he was into it. And so we went down there and my manager helped us set up cameras and everything. And then I just performed for an empty room, but, you know, over the Internet. Wow. How and was, then how was that? I mean, is it hard to promote that kind of stuff for you? Do you get a, do you get enough the promoting? 
Yeah, the promoting was easy. Okay. I, I have a bit of a following online now, yeah. and people were starving for entertainment as much as we were starving to provide it, which has changed. Now a lot of people are doing it. Yeah, I feel like me and Johnny Taylor got kind of an early jump on it. And so we were, we were doing really well with it. And then as there was more, me and Johnny are, I feel like we're always this way. We'll be ahead on something. But then once there's competition, we're like, eh, we'll just go do their show then. We don't like, like neither of us want to be producers if it involves having to compete and win. And <laughs> if no one's doing a show, we'll, we'll produce the show. But then if other people are producing shows and we have to compete with them, we'll be like, no, we'll just do their show. Like, yeah. me. <laughs> I'll give mine up. Yeah. Um, the hard part was getting the technology right. You have to have a few people watching who have their mics on so you can hear their laughter. Ah, okay. and, and so that the laughter can be heard by everyone else watching also. Oh, people need point. to hear other people laughing. You can't hear a comedian performing to silence. Yeah. Oh, that, you know what? That's a good point. That's a, that is yeah. a lot different from a, a lot of the other mediums, like a lot of bands who are live streaming. They can live stream, they, you know, without it, hearing applause or anything. Right. The, the, the audience, I've thought of it this way. The audience actually is our instrument that we play. We go out and we make an audience laugh and gasp and, and howl and clap. And you judge how well we're doing by the response that they're giving. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a good point. So, so. not for rehire. Yeah. Is that different from your other albums in the fact that it's, it's a, a video and it's been released on Amazon prime and is, is that, yeah, I mean, I had Atheist Christmas. Atheist Christmas was on Hulu. Okay, that was a video, and then I did. I put um, Cats Made of Rabbits on DVD. Okay, I was listening was to that second album, which I, I really like. That that's one of my favorite albums. Yeah, I just I felt like everything came together well. But this was the biggest budget that we did, and even that I mean, it's very low budget compared okay. to a lot of other specials you'll see. It's very much independently produced. But you got a lot of cardboard boxes with your initials on them. Yes. That's that, cool. This guy, Jason Adair, <laughs> he's done the set design on my last three things that I've taped. Artist friend of mine, very funny man himself. And he, he literally stenciled all those boxes. We didn't pay to have them printed somewhere, you know, oh, Wow. I think now I got to ask him, that was the original plan. Maybe he found somewhere that printed them cheap. I don't know. He <laughs> <laughs> did it cheap is the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? Like, can we do this? And he said, yeah. He's like, this will cost me less than building a set like he did for Atheist Christmas. Atheist Christmas, he built this little living room set with a fireplace and a window. And there's even snow falling outside the window. It was wow. so cool. You know, a really creative guy. I didn't want to do a theatrical set again, though. I felt like we'd already done that. And when he threw that idea at me, which also is a little nod to Andy Warhol with his Brillo boxes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, everything about it. I just, I loved it. Um, so that was cool. That was super fun. And I, I feel like it looks professional. Yeah. But, but like I said, it was totally on the cheap. And it also, you know, fits in with the theme of the show, which I liked a lot too. Yeah. We wanted to let the audience take the boxes. Oh, <laughs> which is an easy way for, for cleanup. Yeah. But there was another part of me I was moving at the time. <laughs> And I thought, how funny would it be if my new neighbors see us moving in and all the boxes have my face on them? Like, <laughs> they think, who the hell is this guy? Like, he, he had custom boxes printed up for his move. <laughs> but we didn't. We didn't do that. Oh. We let the audience walk out of there with the boxes because that was fun sitting there and autographing boxes after the show. And then we also didn't have to clean up. There's no striking the set. That's awesome. 
Now, I don't want to give too much away because I want people to watch it. And I don't want them to listen to the special by hearing this podcast. But is right. there, is, <laughs> I, I really, really liked you know what you'd mentioned about Mike and how yeah. and I didn't realize until the end how influential he was not only for you but for so many other people. There's another thing on Amazon Prime called uh, Animation Outlaws. Okay. And it's a documentary about Spike and Mike. Oh, cool. And I highly recommend it. I think that that along with my special will make a great double feature. That's awesome. But um, Dale Gribble on King of the Hill is named after Mike Gribble. Wow. Uh, you know, Nick Park of Wallace and Gromit. Uh, yeah. Spike and Mike were the first people to ever show his films in the U.S. They were showing films by John Lasseter, who founded Pixar. Yeah. When he was nobody, they showed his college films. You oh, know, wow. they 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 didn't just show Mike Judge's early films. They produced them. Oh, boy. If you look at Duh and I'm trying to remember the, like, like the monster truck rally episode of oh. Beavis and Butthead, the things that were on liquid television. Yeah. Yeah. Frog baseball. Uh, those were produced by. Yeah. Frog baseball, duh. And, and even an, a pre Beavis and Butthead one called Inbred Jed. Oh, wow. Um, that stuff's all, it's produced by Spike and Mike. Spike named Butthead Butthead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I could sit here and go on all day with all the people that owe so much to Spike and Mike. Yeah. That- so uh, they were really neat guys. And I feel like they, they totally influenced animation. All of us feel their influence and most people will never know it and will never hear of them. They're like these unsung heroes. And uh, I would love for them to be remembered because they were some there's, I shouldn't keep saying it in past tense. I mean, Spike's still out there fighting the good fight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We don't want a really special thing. We don't want to press a narrative that hasn't happened yet. Right. Go jinxing Spike. Yeah. <laughs> now, but in addition to your special, you also have your own podcast. Yeah. Now that happened because of the pandemic. Okay. You know, I, was, I mean, I'd wanted to do one for a while, but really getting the push to get going was because, you know, I'm at home and I'm, I'm not performing. Yeah. And it's, it's wanting that outreach. So it's really neat, though, because it's not about me. And, and my comedy, it's me getting to talk to, I, I've had comic book artists on, yep. um, I've had musicians, filmmakers, you know, I'm trying not to have a ton of comedians on because I feel like comedians interviewing comedians, uh, there's just so much of that already. Yeah. So I just, I want to have on artists that I love. I'm going to have a, a magician on coming up soon. And oh, cool. yeah, my friend Simone Turkington, and she's getting tricks ready that she can do without you having to see them. Oh, she's wow. Gonna, so she's going to actually do some tricks with us over the podcast. Oh, so. man, I'm excited. I, you know, it just in, in getting up in, with you, I, I, you know, saw your podcast and started listening to it and I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's a lot of fun. And oh, like, you, Thank you. like you said, you've got a, a wide variety of, of people coming on. It's really keeps it really interesting. I'm one, I'm someone who writes fan letters. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And so I had Keith Knight on. He's the cartoonist who the show Woke yeah. is based on his work. Okay. Um, and people are like, ooh, that's a get. How'd you, you know, how'd you connect with Keith? Yeah. And I was like, I wrote Keith a fan letter six years ago. Oh, wow. And he wrote back and we've kept in touch ever since. And we've kind of become pen pals. You know, we've never, we still have yet to meet in real life. <laughs> that's, um, that's fantastic. I mean, that's how I got a lot of the guests on, on 
my podcast is yeah just reaching out even th- usually well usually through social media or something it, right the first few i got i was just trying to keep in touch well not keep in touch but but keep tabs on some of my favorite musicians because the the bands that i loved from the 90s weren't active anymore but i thought maybe they're still making music in other bands or doing their own stuff so right I, so i'd reach out just to see if they would accept a friend request on facebook or something and and see what right. they were doing and and that's how i got started doing doing this so yeah i had wendy and richard penny from the comic book elf quest on that started with a fan letter that's awesome. uh jeffrey brown who did vader's little princess and jedi <laughs> academy oh i love uh, Vader's that, little princess that was a fan letter Wow! Not, not for Vader's Little Princess, but for his early autobiographical work, Clumsy and uh, AEIOU and Easy Intimacy. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, really good stuff. Every podcaster goes through something horrific, some some big issue that, that happens. And I, I can tell you mine, but I, I, I'd like to hear if, if you've had your moment of, oh, God, what just happened yet? Yeah, probably. If you go listen to the Kasim Bentley episode. Okay. I love Kasim. And he's a San Francisco comedian. But oh my God, like from the moment I introduce Kasim, he just starts talking. (laughs) And I'm struggling to get a word in now and then. And he basically just performs an hour. I mean, like as if he was on stage and he was the headliner. Oh (laughs) man. And it's great because he's so funny. Yeah. But all I could do was hang on for dear life. And then some of the stuff coming out of his mouth was horrible, (laughs) which is kind of his stock in trade. Like that didn't surprise me, but I didn't have a chance to really respond to it. It was moving too fast. You know, he called me a cock at one point. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and again, this is a guy who he said thank you to me on his album in the in the liner notes. Like I know Kasim and I are are buddies, but trying to put him in in any kind of restrictive box so that I could actually get an interview with him. Yeah. Forget it. And the other thing about him is when he's not on stage, he's kind of soft spoken and quiet. Oh really? And stupid me thought that when I would go to interview him for the podcast, I would get that casino. Ah, uh, but you put a mic and in I front honestly, of him. Honestly, it's funny to think about this looking back, but I honestly thought, how can I get him out of his shell? Oh, wow. <laughs> just and put a mic in course, front of him. Yeah. Once we started talking, there was no, it wasn't a problem getting him out of his shell. It was a problem getting him to sh- yeah. <laughs> were, go back in, go back in your shell. You've been ignoring my question and talking for 20 minutes. <laughs> let me at least ask another question. You can ignore it also, but yeah. let me at least feel like I'm making an effort to make this an interview. <laughs> and, and if Kasim hears this, I'm not saying any of this is criticism of him. It was a great performance. He's wonderful. Yeah. But as the person running the podcast, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my producer, Joe, who's, who's also my manager, convinced me to afterwards to not worry about it. I was like, we, we want to put that out or no? And Joe's like, of course. He's like, I've never laughed so hard. He's all laughing both with Kasim, but also at you. <laughs> like, like listening to you struggle. Uh, he said it was great. And it, it, you know, it caught his personality, which is what we aim to do. So oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so that could actually kind of go both ways. It could be like your worst podcasting experience or your best. Yeah, I'm going to go with worst. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's still too fresh. My best best was getting to talk to Wendy and Richard Penny 
who make the comic ElfQuest yeah. for two hours. These are people I've been a fan of since I was, I think, 12 or 13. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Oh, I just worshipped their work when I was a kid. And so to just sit and, and rap with them for two hours was incredible and get their whole story. And Yeah, because you're big into comics and, and, and you uh, at one point wanted to be a, an illustrator or an, an artist, right? I want to, yeah, so I wanted to be an artist, but I'm not great at it. (laughs) (laughs) But what I really would like to do is write graphic novels and find an artist to collaborate with. But it was funny. I was talking when when I talked to Keith Knight about that, he said, you don't have to worry about the art. He said, no one gives a shit about the art. (laughs) And he pointed out there are several very popular comics now on the internet where the art is stick figures. Wow. Really? People really, if the writing is good, but of course, then that really, you know, well, is the writing good? Yeah, that, that's so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel you. So, but that. every time I've tried, I, I get too hung up on trying to make the art look the way I want it to look. Yeah. You no know? stick figures for you. Yeah. It's like I'm trying to do something that I don't really have the skill to pull off. Yeah. And then at this point now, if you do something stick figured, it's going to be derivative. Then it's, yep, absolutely. So. So now you got to go somewhere between good, fine art and stick figures. Yeah. My daughter's it's, almost to the point where I'll just let her draw that. Oh, that's we're, a good idea. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. She's actually mad that, that she didn't get to draw the pictures for Tiger Torn. Oh, <laughs> next <laughs> book. The next book. The next book. Yeah. We'll get there. Well, where can people find the, the special and how can they follow you on social media to see what, what you're up to? So my first and middle name, Keith. And Lowell, K-E-I-T-H-L-O-W-E-L-L. Keith Lowell, written as one word, is my handle pretty much everywhere. Okay. So that's Twitter and um, uh, what's the other? TikTok and Instagram. Instagram, And then Facebook, I'm just Keith Lowell Jensen. Okay. I think I still have a website out there called rockass.net. Yeah, I did find that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't update it very often, but it's... (laughs) You know, it's got stuff on it, but really to keep Lowell Jensen, part of the good thing about using all three names is that it's very searchable. I'm the only Keith Lowell Jensen out there. That's true. Um, and, and prime go. I've actually got two things on prime right now. Atheist Christmas got put on there. So at some time recently, I was surprised. I didn't know that it was there again. Okay. So, uh, Atheist Christmas is free on prime, but, but the big one is not for rehire. Go check it out. I tell people like it's, it's a, be ready for it to be a little different than a normal stand-up thing. Like give yourself time to actually sit down and watch the whole thing. It's not like a, Hey, let's go watch five minutes of it and see if we like, like yeah, settle in, settle in and give it a chance. Um, but I really appreciate reviews on there. If you give me a rating and a review, you know, uh, it's an independent release, you know, through 800 pound gorilla records, but they're a right. small label. Yeah. So it's not like we have a huge advertising budget. And I don't know if people realize how much those reviews affect the algorithm. So enough people review it, it could mean you you pass a certain threshold. You get 50 reviews. Oh my God, like thousands of more people see it than if you were on the other side of 50. Okay. You know, and then you pass a hundred and then after that you got to pass 500. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, when you review things that you like online, you're doing the artist a huge favor. That's a great thing to do. Listen to that people review Keith's special review, the podcast review, his podcast, my podcast. Oh, it's super true of podcasts too. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So Re- and go I, review performance anxiety. Thank you. Give them five stars. I do a terrible job of promoting my own podcast. I'm I'm the worst at it. 
<laughs> yeah, you got to get guests to do the work for you. I try. That's why I try to get people like people who other have, have some kind of a following. So I'm going right. to be relying on you and your your peeps to to push this one through. <laughs> you son of a bitch! I'm here for you to promote me. I think we're both screwed. I don't think you're supposed to admit that out loud, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's what post is for. I think I. Right. I can edit it, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I prefer not editing. Yeah. It's got a better feel to it. Exactly. Well, and thank you so much for spending this your evening with me, man. This has been a blast. I've oh, yeah. It's good talking to you, man. Great stories. And, and definitely, I, I will definitely leave a review now that I've watched the special and uh, make I'll make it five stars. How's that? I, I'll take it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 